Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. And Father, we just humbly ask for the grace of your spirit as we continue to worship now by availing our hearts to the word of God, to a new book study through the scriptures that you have given to us. Please speak to us this morning by your spirit's ministry, Lord. We ask expectantly in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> you know, whether it is in family life or we could say business operations, I think as well, certainly spiritual life as well as in church life, in all of those areas, it is important, first of all, to both know your role, but even more important than knowing your role is being faithful to fulfill your role. Not just knowing what your role or your responsibility is, but faithfully fulfilling your role. And we see this both in today's verses we'll look at, as well as what I think is really a theme in this letter of 1 Timothy overall. Fulfilling our role, or we might say fulfilling our assignment, it matters to the Lord. It is important to Him. We are the Lord's people, and the Bible refers to us as servants of the Lord. The Bible refers to us as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. And whether a soldier or a servant, we've all been given a degree of stewardship in our lives that we are responsible for. Every one of us, there are certain things beyond just our Christian walk alone that we have been entrusted to care for, to oversee as a steward, to manage well, things to attend to, tasks, work to be done, ministries, whatever it may be. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says there that it is required, not suggested, required in stewards that one be found faithful that we take serious our stewardships from the Lord, remaining committed, being reliable, staying responsible, attending to things that we're supposed to well. Romans 12 warns us not to be lagging in diligence, but to be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And there are always going to be things in all of our lives that can interfere with you and I fulfilling our role. We can just get distracted sometimes, other times we may get discouraged and that interferes with us fulfilling our role. We can get discontent and therefore kind of neglect and go over here and do this or move on to something else because of our discontentment. We can be defeated by fears and worries of the difficulty of it or just drained by the exhaustion of trying to do that role and just kind of growing weary and well-doing. You know, it's interesting that Paul in the book of Colossians particularly calls out a man, Archippus, and poor Chip's got the testimony his whole life long of getting this exhortation, Colossians 4. Paul said, tell Archippus to pay attention to the ministry which you've received in the Lord that you might fulfill it. It seems somehow we don't know the details, but Archippus had a clear ministry, something he was to fulfill and he wasn't doing it, and he kind of needed a little exhortation to get back on task. And I think fulfilling our role both as a Christian and as the church collectively was on the mind of the Holy Spirit when he stirred Paul the Apostle's heart to write this particular letter that we have here in the New Testament. We are told specifically in chapter 3 the reason behind this written record. In fact, if you'll just turn with me over to chapter 3 in 1 Timothy here, as we begin this book study, I want you to see this because it lays the basis for studying this letter. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14 and 15, look what Paul says. He says to Timothy, these things I write to you 
though I hope to come to you shortly. So Timothy, I'm hoping to come be there personally, but until I can get there, I couldn't wait. I want to write some things by correspondence in written form. He says, verse 15, but if I'm delayed, in case I don't get there soon enough, I write, here, pay attention now, verse 15, so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. So Paul clearly indicates here the purpose behind writing this specific letter. We don't always get these kind of indications in New Testament letters, but you cannot be more specific right there. Paul tells us the exact reason he wrote this letter that we're looking at together. Paul says, I'm writing this to give instructions, to give warnings, to give spiritual counsel and guidance for a purposeful reason to tell us as Christians, both individually and to tell us collectively as the church, how we are to function as the household of God. In other words, this is a letter to give instruction and warning and guidance and direction how God wants his church to operate. And let me emphasize again that word, his church. He calls it the church of the living God. The church does not belong to a pastor. It does not belong to overseers. It does not belong to a congregation democratically. The church belongs to God. The Bible says in Ephesians 20, he purchased it with his own blood. Jesus said, I will build, he actually called it, my church. And so therefore, we don't have the freedom to do what we want as a church. Our role and responsibility is to realize this is God's family. He's the father. The father is the one with authority. And therefore, the father with his wisdom and his loving care for the family and the household and his power to make decisions gives directives. This is how I want my household to operate. And God has that prerogative because this is the spiritual household of God. The local church family is like a spiritual household. God is the father, and with a great wisdom and loving oversight, he gives clear directives in this letter of timeless spiritual standards that are, you might say, the household order or rules or way that God wants the church locally to operate, to keep the family safe, to keep us healthy spiritually, and to keep us living in harmony that we might experience God's best. And I can tell you this, 1 Timothy is not a politically correct letter at all. It's not. But it is a spiritually accurate and biblically correct letter in every sense. And God says, from the beginning of the establishment of the local church, this is how I want my household to operate. And so it gives great lessons because as the church, he tells us there in verse 15, our primary function, notice he says the church is, verse 15, the pillar and the ground of truth. The ground speaks of foundation. The pillar speaks of something that would hold something up. And so what the Bible is telling us is this is the critical function of the local church in a dark and decaying world, which 1 John chapter 5 taught us what? The whole world lies under the sway, the direction of the wicked one. But the church are those called out of the world into the kingdom of God. And listen, lies and deception, folks, are the primary methodology of the devil. Lies and deception. And so therefore, guess what the job of God's household spiritually is to counteract lies and deception of the devil by being the foundational place where truth pumps into the world to be the basis for where truth is understood, to be the place where truth is propagated. The church is to be the epicenter of truth because the world is being misguided constantly in lies by the devil's deception. So therefore, that means this, that we, as the local church, we, not the government, are the foundation and basis of what truth is. And this is where truth should have its basis, among the local church and among Christians who then go out into the world as representatives of the basis of what is truth and what is error, morally and spiritually and for families and for marriage and for child raising and for everything else. 
We're to be the basis of that. We, not the government, not schools, not media, are to be the ones who are putting out the truth and equipping people with truth so that they understand how to function properly and have the best life that God intends for us as human beings. So I think this letter myself is very pertinent in light of what we see unfolding in our culture today. I think it couldn't be more timely that we would understand these truths. And I think as well, sadly, when I look at some parts of the church setting aside truth to seek to be relevant in societies instead, to keep this in mind as we study this letter, that this is our calling as the local church, and that we are to function according to God's design, because when we deviate from truth, it's always a path towards ruin. It's always a path towards ruin. So here, Paul says, Timothy, I'm giving this communication. I'm writing these things out under the inspiration of the Spirit so that as a Christian, and Timothy, for you as a minister, and for the congregation there in Ephesus and the surrounding region, that you may know how to fulfill your role properly as God's people, that you would understand how the church is to function and to operate. Look with me in verse 1 of our letter as it opens up. He begins by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. So notice our letter begins, as all ancient letters and most New Testament letters we see in our Bible do, identifying the author at the onset of the letter. And much of this was typically just practical because letters were written on scrolls. And if you had a longer scroll to try and unroll all the way to the end to find out who the letter was from, love John or love Bill at the end of it, it was very practical. The author would just identify themselves at the beginning. Probably was also very helpful if you didn't want to read the rest. <laughs> Paul, nah, we were not, that's always convicting when he writes stuff. Yeah. It, it, this is how they would, you would identify yourself at the author right at the beginning. And Paul here identifies, notice, himself together with one of his roles, that he was a divinely authorized leader and church planner among the early church. He says here that he was, look at it, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, that word apostle that's used there, the Greek literally speaks of a sent one one sent forth on mission with authorization for that mission from a higher power. The best way I could illustrate it would be like a king authorizing an ambassador or a dignitary or a diplomat to basically go forth representing in an official sense his throne or his power as the king over a nation, sending out a diplomat with authorization to conduct affairs on behalf of the king with all of the power and the resources of the throne behind him, but he is a representative to faithfully represent the king. And this is the idea in a spiritual context as the Bible speaks of an apostle of Jesus Christ, one sent out with authority or spiritual authorization from King Jesus. This is what Paul's referring to, a person selected by the king, authorized and empowered from the throne, and then sent forth to conduct affairs on behalf of the king and for the kingdom of God in a divinely authorized way. So they've been empowered and authorized as a spiritual leader, and Paul says here that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, that is, by Jesus Christ, and the word Christ, again, remembers that term Messiah or Mashiach. He's the Christos, the anointed one, the Savior. So Paul here is indicating that it was of or from King Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, that he was authorized and he is sent forth as an apostle. Now, let me just briefly explain a few things. This is what Paul was by his spiritual office in the very strict sense in the early church in his role. The Bible indicates in a strict sense that initially in the early church, there was indeed an office in the early church of being one of Jesus's 12 apostles, authorized divinely with this role in ministry. And Acts chapter 1 tells us that there was strict criteria for those who were apostles. They had to be men who were around during the time of Jesus's ministry, and they also had to be men who were eyewitness to the resurrected and glorified Christ. 
And this was the criteria, the Bible says, for those who were apostles. And these 12 men, the Bible tells us, Ephesians 2, the office of the early apostle was, it says, to build or lay the foundation of the early church. So they had a foundational role with spiritual authorization to lay the foundation of the New Testament church, to write New Testament scripture and doctrine to establish those things, and these 12 men were divinely authorized in that way. But listen, once you build a foundation initially, you don't keep building a foundation forever. You build a foundation, and then you continually then build further upon the foundation once it's laid. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us there is no other foundation to lay than that which was already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the foundation. The apostles were used to lay the foundational things of the early church. The rest then is building upon that. And the Bible tells us in Jude as well that, that the, the faith, the faith, definite article, the Christian faith, was once for all handed over to the saints. So there is the establishment of the early church, New Testament scripture, New Testament doctrine that has been handed down. So there's not new scripture. There are not new doctrines. There's not new foundations to lay. We now build upon that. And Revelation 21 says that in the eternal dimension, there is the recognition of the names. It says, Revelation 21, the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb the 12 apostles of the Lamb engraved on the wall of the New Jerusalem. So in the strict sense, in the most literal sense, those initial 12 apostles were used in a set way. I personally myself do not believe that the official sense of this apostolic office that was used in the early church is something that people still exercise today. That being said, I do believe the ministry function of operating in an apostolic manner is something that people can still operate in today and carries on. And Paul also, we see from his life, functioned in that way. It was how God used him. Think of what Paul's life was used by as an apostle. Paul was authorized, and then Paul went forth with that spiritual authority as a leader, as a missionary, as a church planter, and he was one sent out, authorized by King Jesus, and he operated in this authorized manner with a spiritual calling and enabling. And basically, that was his spiritual ministry. That was his calling. He was one sent out by the Holy Spirit. And he was used as a missionary, a church planner, a pastor, establishing local churches. And then Paul would train and turn over those local churches to other men. And then he would move on in that apostolic manner and he would plant new churches. And Paul as well, operating this way of sort of providing oversight over these other congregations, helping provide guidance to the spiritual leaders. And I do believe today it is possible for a man to still operate in that role. I don't think it's necessary to call yourself apostle, and as soon as you call yourself that, I already get uncomfortable. But I do believe that there are men who operate with an apostolic type ministry. There are those that the Holy Spirit sends out. They're pioneers. They're church planters. They're missionaries. They, are, they go forth they establish new works, they plow up the ground, they lay the foundation, they plant local churches, and many a times are used in that same manner. And they have an authorization from the Lord and the enabling to go along with that. And I think Paul represents both. He had the initial office, but I think he also operated in that ministry, which to some degree, it's a role that some can still operate in today. Notice Paul indicates in verse 1 here that he was called to his role spiritually as his ministry. Look what he says, verse 1. This is what he was in his role by, I have an underline, the commandment of God. By the commandment of God. In other words, Paul's role was not something he sought for himself. It was not something he self-appointed himself to and just started doing. Oh, well, that job didn't work in accounting. Maybe I'll be a apostle. Maybe I'll be a pastor. So I think I'll, I'll start calling myself that, and I'm just going that, to... That, Paul didn't do that. Paul didn't end up in this role because he was selected by the vote of some group of people and given that position within the church, nor was it assigned to him as the result of completing 
you know, a, a, a training or some sense of schooling criteria or religious development. Rather, the Bible is pretty clear it was a divine appointment. It was a divine appointment by the king on the throne. God decided for Paul to fulfill that role. That's what it means, I was an apostle, by God's command. In other words, God decided this is how I can best utilize Paul's life. It was God's decision. God made that sovereign determination, how he wanted to use Paul. He empowered him and enabled him to do such, and he was given a command from the throne. Paul's going to say later in chapter 1 that the Lord Jesus enabled him, and he says, and he put me into the ministry. Paul says, I didn't put myself into the ministry. The religious group I was with didn't put me into the ministry. He says, the Lord put me into the ministry. And truthfully, only the Lord can do that if we want healthy ministry. <laughs> we want the Lord to put people into the ministry. We may ratify it or recognize it on the human level, but Paul says this was the Lord's decision. Now, I think Paul uses that strong language there in verse 1 to indicate why he so faithfully operated in the role that he did. In other words, here's my point I'm trying to convey to you, that, that it's not that God offered Paul an opportunity to fulfill that role. It's not that God asked Paul to fulfill that role. It says that God commanded Paul to fulfill that role. He didn't say, Paul, I'm offering you an opportunity. Would you like to do this? He didn't say, Paul, I'm asking you, please, as my servant, would you do this? He said, no, as your king, I am commanding you to do this. This is my directive for you. This is my command as your governing authority. This is the assignment you're given. And listen, when you're given a command or an assignment from your authority, it's an obligation. There is no considering or choosing. It's, it's sensing, hey, this is a, Paul is saying, it's a matter of obedience, for Paul, that's what, how Paul sensed his role spiritually. It was simply a matter of obedience. You know, I particularly remember, uh, as I'm saying this, when we were uh, transitioning, as we were turning the church in York over that we had planted and were pastoring there for 13 years, to come here to take the Bible study and to go forward, because we didn't know if that's exactly how it was going to go at first. I wasn't sure if we were going to just kind of get the Bible study going and then turn the work over, and I'm selfish, and I was comfortable pastor in Calvary Chapel, York. I, I probably would have done that if it was my human druthers, and my wife and three daughters would have probably liked me a little bit better for a short season of time, that I didn't uproot them and take them through another transitional process. But I remember specifically one of my family members you know, who, who just kind of more of a, you know, this is so exciting. Wow, you're going out. You're planning another church. This is so exciting. And they were like, I don't know, they were trying to cheerlead me a little bit. And I just said, it's not exciting. There's nothing exciting about this. It's sheer obedience. Sheer obedience. Do you really think after 13 years of blood, sweat, and tears and making my wife and children comfortable that I want to leave all that with no promise on the other end and start all over again? I've already done the rodeo. No, no, no. It's just all obedience. And I can understand Paul, as he looked at his calling, it wasn't a thing of, well, the Lord's asking me to do this. The Lord's giving me an opportunity to do this. He said, no, he commanded me to do it. If I don't, I'd be disobeying God. I would just be disobeying God. Remember, Paul said, as he spoke of his own role of ministry on another occasion, he said, I am what I am by the grace of God. In other words, Paul just humbly accepted there was nothing special about him. He just knew, I know what God's told me to do, and I just have to obey God. It was an issue of obedience. He sensed a requirement and wanted to comply with his duty. And listen, that sense of having been assigned his role by God's command is what makes fulfilling it all the more important. And let me say this morning, we are all, as Christians, given roles as God's servants. In fact, the New Testament even says we're all capable ministers of the new covenant. We've hyper-spiritualized the word minister. God doesn't want you and I to be in the ministry. God wants the ministry to be in us. 
that we would all find the role that God has for us to serve and to minister, and that we would all find the role that God has for us as an individual Christian, as a man, as a woman. Again, and there's no role that is more important or more spiritual than another. We've made that human mistake in our logical thinking as well. And, and kind of operating in some ways a little bit too much like the secular society does, that you climb a ladder with titles and positions, and this is nonsense. The highest calling of God is to be what God has called you to be and to understand your role, how God's wired you, what God's given you a charge and a duty and a command to do, and to embrace it humbly in faith and to be as faithful as possible in that. What role has God assigned you? Listen, if you're here this morning and you're a husband and you're married, God's given you a role to be a spiritual leader in your family, to lead your wife and to take the lead and to provide good, caring, spiritual leadership, servantly. That's a huge role. That's a huge role. If you have children, now your ministry just grew. If you have two, three, four, now you've got a congregation. If you're a stay-at-home mom, oh my goodness, you're overwhelmed. Now you've got a full-time job doing the most important thing in the world, working all week long, cultivating the little heart and life of a child, caring for them and raising them and pouring into them spiritually and being there as a presence. Oh my goodness, that's an overwhelming role. God gives us roles in the different ways we serve in the body of Christ, to serve as an usher or a children's ministry worker or to operate you know, AV equipment or to clean the church or to be able to lead music or I mean, all the different ways God gives us roles. He entrusts us with things, and he gives us the corresponding abilities and capabilities to do the things that his divine commission is for us. And it's important to know your role, but listen, all the more important, not just to know it, but to faithfully fulfill your role. To say, I know what God's commanded me to do, and I'm not going to try and do what they're doing or he's doing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on what God has commanded me to do in this season. I know who God has called me to be and what my role is personally right now, and it is good to know and sense what God has commanded you to do. And listen, to take it serious and to pour your heart into it and to obey it as a duty, to take it as a responsibility and to faithfully address your assignment. Perhaps today, look, if in any way you've been distracted from your role or maybe you've just been discouraged in your role or maybe in some way you've been negligent or you feel defeated or just too overwhelmed by your role. Can I encourage you, by the grace of God, be who you are and take serious your responsibility. Take serious your role and understand that God has given us commands like soldiers and to not do such. Whatever our role may be, really to be negligent is, is really just akin to spiritual disobedience. James chapter 4 says it this way. If you and I know the good that we're supposed to do and we don't do it, that's sin. That's strong. So it's not always, oh, don't do these things. God says, no, there are certain things you know you're supposed to do, and if you neglect it, that's sinful. So know your role. God, show me my role. Some of you already are aware of what it is, but God, help me to be faithful. You've commanded me to do this. Like Paul, may I take it as a duty and faithfully fulfill it. Notice how God himself even took upon himself a great role. He says at the end of verse 1 that God is what? Our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. So even God himself took a role upon himself and faithfully fulfilled it. He says here in verse 1 that God became our Savior. That's a pretty huge role. God whom we sinned against, and I love this phrase in the New Testament, God our Savior. What a great three-word phrase. God our Savior. Savior. The very God whom we sin against, who we separated ourselves from relationally due to human rebellion and becoming guilty, God in loving action took initiative and personal responsibility through his all-wise plan, not just, listen, not just to make a plan to save us, but he actually became the Savior himself. He didn't just say, let me come up with a plan to save those people. God said, I'm going to personally take responsibility and I'm going to take the role to become their savior. That's pretty marvelous. Pretty incredible that God himself found a way, Romans 3 says, to be just, which means to be righteous still and just, 
but also to justify at the same time, to make us righteous through simply believing in his son, Jesus Christ. Amazing what God was willing to do. And the way that he did that by, by coming himself in human flesh to reconcile mankind who had turned away from him back into relationship. Verse 1, Paul says, God became our Savior, how? Through the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. That's how. God came in the person of Jesus Christ, and as a result of what Jesus did, faithfully fulfilling his work and faithfully completing his role and his redemptive ministry as a mediator between God and man, he became the kinsman redeemer, and by fulfilling his role, as the result of that, Jesus now can supply to you and I hope. He can give to us hope. And notice, our hope is not in ourselves, and our hope is not in other things. He says, Jesus Christ, our hope. In other words, our hope is Jesus. Our hope is in us. Because he fulfilled his role so wonderfully, and he keeps doing it as the mediator at the right hand of God, he's able to save to the uttermost all those who come to God through him all the way out to the end because he fulfills his role. Our hope is in him. Colossians 1 speaks of Christ in you, the hope of glory. First Thessalonians 5 says, we don't have to fear wrath, but we have the hope of salvation. Titus chapter 1 says, we now have the hope of eternal life. In chapter 2, Titus says that we are waiting for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who's coming back for us. Hebrews chapter 6 says in regards to our hope in Jesus that our hope in Jesus is the anchor to our soul. The anchor to our soul. Having hope in Jesus. You know, the Bible describes hope in a much different way of the world. I, I hope this happens. I hope that works out. Hope so. The Bible's use of hope refers to an absolute expectation of coming good. That's what biblical hope is, the absolute expectation of coming good. And for those of us who are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, we have the absolute expectation of coming good. He is our hope, hope of better things ahead, hope of greater things to come. Like when Jesus changed the water into wine, and when they described it, they said, he saved the best for last. And that's our hope. We have hope of better things. Look, this morning, understand, this hope is wonderful in Jesus because it's what strengthens us in this hard world. It's what sustains us in the difficulties and the hardships. And this morning, because Jesus fulfilled his role, if you're in a relationship with Jesus, your life's not hopeless. Like so many people in the world feel. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the anchor to your soul of hope, you don't have to be hopeless like people in the world. There is great hope for you personally. There's great hope for your future. When you met Jesus, your soul got anchored in hope. And be encouraged by that. You don't have to live hopeless anymore. Jesus has a wonderful future, and you can keep your hope in that very thing. Paul says, verse 2, now who he's writing to, Timothy says, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul then identifies the recipient of this letter. And notice, unlike a lot of other New Testament letters, it's not addressed to a congregation. It's not addressed to the church of Colossae or the church of Rome. But this correspondence and letter is to one he mentored spiritually. It's a personal letter to an individual. Likely the letter was read and explained to the whole congregation of Ephesus, where Timothy was pastoring at that time, yet Paul's communication was specifically to Timothy, to a younger man in ministry who probably was about maybe about 20 or so years younger than Paul, you might say a generation behind Paul was sort of next generation, and Timothy, we know from Acts 16, was recruited by Paul to serve with him in ministry. Acts 16 tells us that when Paul went through the region where Timothy lived, he heard that Timothy was a disciple, which means a committed follower, a committed learner. That's what it does. And he says, I heard this young man, Timothy, not that he was a, a follower or a Christian or a believer, I heard he was a disciple. Paul said, I heard he's a young, committed 
follower of Christ, and it says that he was also well spoken of by the brethren. In other words, he had a good reputation. He had a good reputation among the congregation and among the community. People had a, a good word to say about this young man, Timothy. So Paul decides to take him under his wing and to get him engaged in the work of the Lord, and he allows Timothy then to operate with a degree of leadership under his own leadership to handle some of his ministry works. Paul calls Timothy here in verse 2, a true son, he says, in the faith. In other words, Paul viewed him like a spiritual son in the realm of the Christian family. And again, the family of God, God's household, brothers, sisters. He's going to say later in this letter, we have spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers. And Paul viewed himself like a spiritual father figure in Timothy's life. And he saw Timothy sort of like a spiritual son. They had a close relationship. Timothy was around Paul a lot, just like a son is around their father a lot. Timothy learned a lot from Paul. He was always gleaning and learning. No doubt Paul helped care for him like a spiritual parent, like a father figure, which means that Paul intentionally was seeking to look out for Timothy's welfare as a spiritual son, to set a good example in front of him as a spiritual son, to look for occasions, to teach lessons, to help Timothy to grow, to mature, to develop into a man of God. At times, no doubt, he challenged Timothy, as any good father will a son. He corrected Timothy. He held him to task on certain things. He mentored Timothy, both as a Christian man and even as sort of a protege in ministry as well. When Paul writes the personal letter of 2 Timothy to Timothy, where he really speaks kind of just in a very personal way to him, there, 2 Timothy 2, Paul says to him, the things that you've heard and learned from me, you pass these on now to other men. But notice Paul indicates, Timothy, there are things you've heard from me and things you've learned from me. When he gets into chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, there Paul identifies how Timothy, he said, Timothy, you've carefully followed my doctrine and my manner of life. In other words, he emulated Paul. Timothy said, you've carefully followed my doctrine and my manner of life. He observed Paul's lifestyle and he sought to emulate the good example of it. He says there in that chapter as well that Timothy sought to exhibit Paul's faith and Paul's purpose and his perseverance. In other words, Timothy looked at Paul like any son should be able to to their father and said, I want to have faith like my father does. I love the purpose of his life. I see the manner of his life. I love how my dad's got grit and perseverance, and, and I want to have spiritual grit and perseverance. And Paul referred to how God used this relationship in this beautiful way where Paul was like a spiritual father figure, and Timothy was like a spiritual son, and how he gleaned much from Paul's life and his ministry, and God used this relationship in such a meaningful, healthy way. So much so that we can tell this morning, Paul wrote two personal letters to Timothy with lots of wonderful spiritual instruction and information, both 1 Timothy as well as 2 Timothy. And look, this morning, by way of application, I think this spiritual father-son relationship is a wonderful example to emulate. I think the role of Paul and the role of Timothy should be roles that we're trying to still replicate in our lives in the church today as well. Both things, that we would find a Timothy or a few, someone younger than us, maybe chronologically or just spiritually, some younger person, men finding men, women finding women. Let me make sure I codify that. And that you'd find a younger man, a younger woman, and operate like a spiritual father figure in their life or like a spiritual mother. Just operating in that way, helping them, watching out for them, investing in them, you know, holding them at times accountable to things and just helping develop them in that way. But let me also say too, I also think it's wise to embrace the role, no matter what stage of life you're in, to also be a Timothy and to look for someone like a spiritual father figure in your life someone who's more mature in the Lord, someone who you can somewhat submit yourself to their help spiritually to help you grow and benefit from that. Paul gives this sort of ancient blessing to Timothy. He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, grace, which is a word that means favor, peace, calming, rest, 
Grace and peace are common ancient greetings in the New Testament letters. It's a way of pronouncing a blessing. Yet in the pastoral letters to both Timothy and Titus, Paul adds in uniquely mercy. And I find that insightful. When he writes to the churches, grace and peace. When he writes to his two protégés, two ministers who are serving with him, those who engage in the Lord's work, Paul says, grace, mercy, and peace. In other words, Paul says, if you're going to do the work of the Lord, you don't just need grace and peace, you also need mercy. And so he adds in mercy. In these three letters, he adds in mercy. And what's mercy? It's patient assistance with someone's frailty. And look, I don't find this coincidental at all. I find it a supernatural insight there that the Holy Spirit puts in these three pastoral letters because those who are doing the Lord's work need lots of mercy too. They don't just need grace, God's favor. They don't just need peace from the Lord. They also need lots of mercy because those who do any form of ministry and serve people in any way, you understand you need to learn to have mercy with people. They're sheep. You've got to learn how to be merciful with people's shortcomings and weaknesses. And let me also say this, those who are dedicated serving the Lord's people, they need some mercy. When people serve the Lord and they're doing the work of the Lord, let me say on behalf of the many who do the work of the Lord in this ministry here, it's not easy doing the Lord's work. So don't beat them up, please. Show some mercy. Show some mercy to them. It's not easy dedicating your time and energy and efforts to the work of the Lord. Extend mercy to them as they do that wonderful and noble work. Paul gives the initial charge in verse 3 and 4 to Timothy for this letter. He says, I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain there in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause, notice, disputes rather than godly edification. So here's the initial charge to inspire Timothy to fulfill his role while pastoring there in the city of Ephesus. In the book of Acts, we see Paul plants the initial church of Ephesus, located in this very large urban center of Ephesus in Asia Minor. And out of the church of Ephesus and Paul's ministry there, actually for a few years teaching the word of God, we see in the New Testament that many other wonderful works spring out of the church of Ephesus. And it says the word of God and the gospel goes to the whole region of Asia Minor. So out of the healthy, strong church of Ephesus, other fruitful works begin to happen, but look, whenever fruitful works are happening spiritually, there's always going to be a counterattack demonically against that. And one of the primary ways spiritual warfare happens is the attempts of the devil to defile the church with false doctrine, with lies, and to corrupt and misguide God's people. In Acts 20, as Paul was speaking to the Ephesian elders, he spoke to them saying this, "'For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God,' Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, right in the congregation, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone. So Paul knew as he was headed to the region of Macedonia that Ephesus needed solid spiritual leadership. And he sensed that in his heart, and apparently he chose to entrust that role to Timothy. As he left him there in Ephesus, Timothy became the pastoral leader in that local church there in Ephesus, but it seems as well that he also likely was a leader providing kind of general oversight of the other works that sprung forth from there in the area of Asia Minor, kind of helping to oversee and guide the other congregations. And Paul urged him with this role to remain there in Ephesus to charge people, he says, to teach no other doctrine. Timothy, I've left you there. Embrace your role. Anything outside of sound doctrine, outside of the authentic Christian faith or alignment with Scripture, apparently that had arisen. 
teachings that were false, ideas that were erroneous. In chapter 4, Paul's going to caution against those departing from the faith to follow deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So this was a great concern. False teaching and unsound doctrine, listen, folks, is a serious matter. It is a cancer to the Christian and to the local church because it slowly erodes and compromises normal function, and it ultimately can de decay and eventually destroy the Lord's work. So like a commanding officer with military rightful authority, Timothy, Paul says, you've been authorized your role with the authority you have from the Lord is he says, I want you to charge people. That's it's a military term. Like a military commander, I want you to give an order with your leadership authority to forbid people from teaching wrong things. Don't permit it. Don't allow it, he says. Apparently, this was a primary role of Timothy there because healthy doctrine is essential to healthy Christians and to healthy churches. And one of the primary roles of a spiritual leader is to use their divine authority from the Lord to stand against error, to oppose wrong ideas, and to hold the line of what is accurate and biblical. And apparently some in this region were embracing and giving heed and getting entangled. And Paul says there in our verses, in things like fables and endless genealogies. You know, think about it. What are fables? Fables are cleverly entertaining stories to give a moral lesson, right? So Paul says, look, unfortunately, though those clever stories are entertaining, they often lead people to follow traditions rather than sticking to just truth. And so I sense Paul saying to Timothy, Timothy, don't permit any spiritual leaders to cultivate in God's people this desire for entertaining stories and entertaining talks rather than substantive truth of teaching them the word of God and feeding and nourishing and establishing the souls which bring biblical education to God's people, as well as he says, don't let people get caught up in endless genealogies. And the endless genealogies speaks of getting hung up in lists and caught up in the details. And no doubt probably is what had happened Many a times in the ancient culture is people get fixated and bogged down on the details and they get hyper-spiritual with genealogies. And they, they kind of hyper-focus on things that are tedious little details of lineage and pedigree. And many times it's often just an, an arrogance to want to seem hyper-spiritual. Oh, guess what Bible code I found in this genealogy? Look at his Bible code. I don't care about the Bible code. Tell me how to be a husband. Tell me how not to sin this week. Tell me how to walk in the Spirit. I don't need to know your Bible code. You're the first one that just found the Bible code when it was written all those years ago. And he says, look, be careful of these kind of secondary, hyper-spiritual, these non-essential things that people get caught up in to kind of want to look like they're spiritual. He says, these unhealthy things, Paul says it right there. He says, all they tend to do, look what he says, verse 4, is cause disputes, arguments, rather than godly edification. In other words, they end up doing more to harm the body of Christ because if you're not teaching sound doctrine, you're not going to create healthy sheep. And people are going to start becoming immature and behaving selfishly and fighting and disputing. And he says, look, God's called us as the church to be focused on godly edification, to be building each other up, to do what we can to help each other spiritually. That's our purpose and role. And we're to take serious our stewardship to strengthen one another. Hebrews 10 says that the church is to come together to stir up love and good deeds, not to dispute over secondary, non-essential, ridiculous things, but to instead to be unified and to be caring and strengthening and helping one another. And you know how that happens? When somebody takes a strong stand for truth and gives people not stories, but truth, and not statistics, but truth, and not clever, entertaining talks, like a TED Talk, but truth. And feeds people truth to nourish their soul so that the body becomes mature and strong. And look, this is the reason why Paul charges Timothy to take serious his role and not neglect it. If I can draw your attention again to verse 3, he says, Therefore I urged you, Timothy, when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you can charge some 
to teach no other doctrine. Paul, with spiritual authority as an authority figure in Timothy's life, is exhorting him to remain right where he was and to keep doing the important thing that he was doing despite the challenges and the pressures, to stay put, to stay the course, to remain faithful to what he was doing, being willing to stand strong spiritually, being willing to hold the line spiritually, Paul understood it's not an easy assignment. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not always easy. And being able to stay put and stick with things and hold ground is not easy. Being able to lead and to help people, it's not always easy. Yet holding ground may not be easy, but it is essential. And Paul says, therefore, son, you stay there. You stay put and you stay the course. I don't care how pressured you are. I don't care how tired you are. I don't care how discouraged you are. What you're doing is eternally important. You stay at it. You remain there. And look, if I were to say what Paul was trying to do is he's trying to stir up in this young man who maybe his spirit's tired or defeated or discouraged or maybe he's just distracted and Paul's saying, Timothy, staying power. I'm asking you for staying power. Remain in doing what you're doing. You remain at it. And Timothy's human, just like you and I, folks, and I imagine there were plenty of reasons he might have found to want to depart and tempted to find reason to take the escape door and maybe even spiritualize. He just felt called to go on to the next thing. And, and you know, I just feel like God's calling me to the next assignment because this one's, I'm kind of I'm done with this one. And here Paul comes in, and he reminds Timothy, listen, he reminds Timothy, even as God's command, sometimes, sometimes it may be to go. But it is just as true that sometimes God's command is to muster up the faith and the courage to be obedient, to stay. To stay. To remain where you are, to remain what you're doing. And I think if I could identify a bigger weakness in the body of Christ today is that many struggle with exhibiting staying power. People start a whole lot, they sign up for a whole lot, but staying power, staying the course, remaining at things that are important and not neglecting the fact that God wants us sometimes to remain where we are, to remain what we're doing, because it does matter, and it is important, and it's not trivial. Look, it may not be easy, but your willingness at times to remain in that very important role may be the very thing that is the determining factor in God's will. And it was for Timothy. Never use going elsewhere to pursue the next thing, folks, as an excuse for not remaining where you are and remaining doing the very important thing that God has you doing. It does matter. It is important. Let's stand together and let's pray.